Good morning, afternoon, and evening, and welcome to the 8311 Cast, your premier Midwestern-based sports podcast, bringing you all things sports to your beautiful ears. Join your hosts, Kyle Mersch, Mike Ludwig, Ariane Berry, and Wyatt Teeter as we talk to you about college basketball, the NBA, the MLB, and of course, our signature segments, Mike's Stupid Rules, and Write That Down Predictions, here on episode 164. This past weekend's Cyclones men's basketball game was almost the second time this season Iowa State had only one free throw attempt. Caleb Grill missed a free throw attempt in the first half, and we didn't see another free throw attempt until five seconds left in the second half where Jazz Koontz nailed the first bucket to put us up to end the game by uh, 21 points, I believe. Uh, The other game this season with one free throw attempt was in Norman on January 8th. Uh, That attempt was also by Jazz, but he missed. So... On Cyclones.com, I can go back to the 2016-2017 season, but I can't find another instance of only having one free throw attempt in a game by the Cyclones. If you know of a time where this has happened in the past to the Iowa State men's basketball team, definitely let us know on uh, Instagram or Twitter at 8311cast. Yeah, I mean, Oklahoma must be just good at not fouling people, right? If it had, When you shoot that few free throws twice against the same team, it's got to be a theme. I, I didn't look, but that would be my guess, is teams just don't shoot free throws against them. Um, we'll talk more about that uh, OU game in a bit, but uh, we'll start with uh, the bounce back the Cyclone men had um, on the road at TCU. Um, it was another road game nail-biter for the Cyclones, just like the Oklahoma State game was. No team led by more than five or six points um, that entire game, um, so a lot like the OSU game there. Um, the Cyclones didn't play a great game. They got dominated on the offensive glass, and TCU does uh, do that pretty well. But they stole the ball eight times. Isaiah Brockington um, uh, was clutch in the game, um, was clutch late in the game, just like he was against Oklahoma State. And they did enough to win the game, despite missing some free throws. Um, They got bailed out by some indecision of TCU on that final couple possessions, Gabe Kalsher tried to draw a charge and instead just ended up giving his opponent an open three that they missed, luckily, um, in a game that Iowa State won. But it's a bounce-back game, and you, you don't apologize for winning on the road in the Big 12, right? Very much so, I agree. Uh, we've talked about free throws a million times. Uh, seems like it's a problem that we always have, but that's not surprising considering also how our team shoots. Uh I said to you guys before, if we have the game on the line and somebody shooting free throws, I want it to be Trey Jackson, but we haven't seen Trey Jackson in about two or three games, so we really just have to hope we can get whoever on the field. I would trust Tyrese Hunter from the free throw line, too. He's been pretty... I don't know if his number's in front of me, but I just... I, I feel believe like Brockington is our best line. shooter. Brockington shoots the highest percentage from free throws, or from the free throw strike well, this year. Technically, Jackson does. He's two, like two for two on the year. That is right. technically but true, yeah. It, body of work-wise, I think I trust Isaiah Brockington at this point. And just the fact of he he does seem to have some of that clutch factor in him. Uh, it's it's not something that everyone has. It's definitely not something that Gabe Kalsher has had and exhibited this year. Uh, do we want Gabe stepping up for oh, our team? Goodness, no. To take, we have a... take that shot from the line. No, you don't. You want you want Isaiah Brockington, who's who's been in those situations. He knows um, what it's like to really put the team on your back and 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 really carry this team. We only have four people on our roster currently shooting over seventy percent from the free throw line. Uh, Tristan Inaruna at seventy three, Isaiah Brockington at a very respectable eighty, 
And then we have Trey Jackson at 100, and nobody would guess. Uh, it's Carter Booth, also apparently at 100. Apparently he shot some free throws at one point. So that's what, a fun what is, fact What is you. Hunter shooting? Am I just wrong that he's a good free throw shooter? Uh, Hunter is shooting 68.9%, uh, so not very good. good. I thought it was in the 60s. I thought it was closer to 75, but I guess I'm wrong. He always shoots it's... with confidence, so you feel like it's good, but then you forget that he shoots 22.8% from three-point range. I mean, that's true, right. too. I mean, he did step into a couple threes uh, in that home game against OU that looked pretty good, and he's been having a little bit more confidence shooting it from three of late. He uh, takes them when he's open. He, he, put, he put in a, a very respectable 14 points against TCU as he and Brockington um led the way in that game but i think for hunter that's obviously part of his game that's gonna have to evolve and grow you can't have a point guard who's very drive heavy his his game is centered around driving more and being a point guard that only shoots 68 percent from the line just really doesn't cut it you got to be a little bit more of a monte morris-esque player who shoots a little bit closer to that 80 percent mark while also driving to the to the bucket more efficiently so yeah but the good news is you can something you can get better at in the offseason is shooting like that's one of the easiest things to get better at in my opinion and his stroke looks good and i feel like he has good shot selection so i have high hopes that he will get better he's taking it with confidence which is kind of the biggest thing for me it's not as bad as that lonzo ball shot you know where you start across as a right-handed shooter you start on the left side of your face shoot it across your body um i wouldn't say his form is broken but there probably is is a few things you can tweak Uh, it's also getting into the gym and just putting up those shots um not exactly sure that could save gabe kalsher i'm not sure what's gonna fix him but you know getting in the gym and shooting getting up shots is is really the thing that's going to help you obviously isaiah brockington does that very well from any Anywhere from one step inside the three-point line to a couple steps outside the basket with the turnaround jumper as he shoots that mid-range shot very well. But, I mean, I don't know what it is. Once he steps behind that three-point line, it's just almost game over. He's way less efficient. But, you know, one dribble bounce inside the line, as Mike would always say, is the worst shot in basketball is actually, actually Isaiah Brockington's best shot. Agreed. Like, there are shots that if anybody on this team besides Isaiah Brockington took, I would be super upset. And at this point, Brockington takes them, and all I can do is, like, if you make them, if you prove you can make them, you can take them. But he's the only one who I trust to actually take them, so. Yeah. He shoots 40% from three, and if you put, like, one toe on the line, I'm like, that's pretty much automatic. He spins around, two guys in his face, a foot on the line, and I'm I just feel confident that it's going in, and it does. Yeah. yeah, he was very frustrating to watch at the beginning of the year because I, I didn't know anything about him going into the year, of course. And he would take those shots, and I'm just like, stop, why? And then eventually I realized, wait, they go in enough. Okay, you're good, right? So I, I, it's just an adjustment you have to make because you just don't – those are just bad shots normally. There just aren't many people good at hitting those shots. And if you're going to take a shot you're not good at hitting, it might as well be worth three when you hit it instead of two. Hunter's got a lot better at those mid-range shots, too. And we have this weird team where we get excited about contested mid-rangers, and pretty much any time we see an uncontested three-pointer, 
and somebody pulls a three-pointer, we feel like that was a bad possession because we basically have nobody who's consistent from outside. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But with on top of shooting, we shot really, really well um, against uh, OU. Um, it was a really great uh, offensive performance. Um, shot over 60% from the field in that game. Um, the official number, um, i pull it up here. I didn't have it in front of me. Official number for shooting was uh, 67% from the field, 33 of 49. Um, to me, I think that's probably our second best. I think it's probably our second best performance of the year. That's this OU game. Um, or what, 20, what was it? I think probably the Memphis game I'm saying was our best game. And this is probably our second best game. I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I mean, the Memphis game was really good. I would also say another game that was fantastic offensively for the Cyclones was that home game against Texas. Um, it seemed like a lot of things were firing on all cylinders uh, in those two games, uh, in Big 12 play especially. And what would be the, uh, the you know, common theme between those two games? Gabe Kalsher being efficient. Um, I believe in that Texas game, he was he shot 50% from three, and I think he made six threes in that game. Correct me if I'm wrong, at least five. But surprise, Gabe Kalsher was good against OU as well. Um, he was four of seven from the field, nine points, three assists. He played very good defense. Now, when we get this type of production from Gabe, as I mentioned in the Texas game, things usually go well for the Cyclones, and those games are usually not nail biters and super close. It's just that production never comes. You get it. We're talking about two to three games in the season. If you go back to his 30 points that he scored in Brooklyn in the uh, Barclays, uh, whatever classic that the, the Cyclones won. I mean, we're pointing to three games in the season, maybe four, the game against in Lawrence, in Lawrence at Allen Fieldhouse. He played very well in that game too. Um, but four games out of how many of the Cyclones played right now? 20, 26, 27? It's, it's not a high percentage of consistent output that you get from him. So obviously he's not, you can't rely upon him. Um, now are the Cyclones going to shoot 60% from the field every single game? No, we've already proven that. They were it, earlier in the week, they only shot 37% from the field against TCU, but ended up winning. It's just the way in which they get things done. Um, Iowa State was able to turn points off turnovers or, or turn 22 points in off turnovers against OU uh, in this game. And that was something that they did really well against TCU. They had eight steals, um, which was big for the Cyclones. So they have to do the little things really, really well because they cannot count on this offensive production game in and game out. We've seen it, and it just won't work. Will we take it in games like this? Sure. But can we count on it? No. And that's why this team could be very, very dangerous, either in the Big 12 tournament or in the NCAA tournament. You know, maybe you get two games in a row when you're playing back-to-back -back nights where the team's super hot from the field, like they were in the early season tournament when they beat Xavier and Memphis. The team was very efficient from the field, playing back-to-back -back days. Maybe that's something they see in the Big 12 tournament. Who knows? But it seems like when they get one or two days rest, uh, something happens and the, the hoop becomes the size of a pea and nothing can go in. So 
just inconsistency. So you basically do the little things well, and this team will always be somewhat in games. Yeah, and I mean, it does help when you turn turnovers into points, right? We've been talking about that before, where Iowa State failed to turn turnover into points, but this year they did. And it was, uh, uh, or this week, excuse me, this game they did. They scored 22 points off uh, OU turnovers this week, which is close to probably the most uh, they had all year. OU turned the ball over 16 times and returned it in 22 points. So that's a very impressive clip. Um, and that's what you like to see capitalizing off turnovers. We're still not good in the fast break. I don't know if we had any fast break points, maybe like two fast break points all game, but we were efficient after turnovers, um, and that makes the difference as well. Um, these two wins really, I think, um, gave give the Cyclones a really, really good chance to win the NC or to make the NCAA tournament. Excuse me. Um, if looking at the bracket matrix, there. Uh, Every every bracket that's been published, uh, that got published on uh, on Sunday or Monday, had the Cyclones in the tournament. Um, so at least at this point, the Cyclones are pretty safely in the tournament. Um, they'd be they're usually an eight or a nine seed in most of those brackets. So we're looking at probably playing in that eight nine game um, with somebody as of right now. But I think I'm pretty confident that that we're in. If you win two more games, this team is for sure going to be in the NCAA tournament come come the end of the year. And you've got some good opportunities to get those wins, including uh, this week, um, where you play a home game against West Virginia on the 23rd, Wednesday, 6 p.m. Um, that's a game you should win um, at home. West Virginia is not great. You should be able to beat them at home. And then you've also got at Kansas State on Saturday at 1 p.m., um, both of those games are winnable. Um, you could probably, I mean, if even if you lose at K-State, you're probably still okay um, for making the NCAA tournament. You win two more, you get to 20 wins. If this team ends the regular season at 20 and, what would that put them at, 20 and 12, that'll be, that'll be a plenty good record to get them in the tournament. So. And I mean, this is a team that has now eight quad one, quad one wins so far this season. Um, when they're when whatever broadcast was putting it up on the screen, they were uh, saying that Iowa State really at that point was third in the country. Like the teams that the most at that time was 10 quad one wins by any team. Uh, since then, following this weekend, Baylor, Kansas has 10 quad one wins. Baylor has nine. Iowa State sits at eight, third in the Big 12, while also sitting eighth in Big 12 standings. Um, so this team has a lot of quality wins on their resume, which is hard to overlook, especially when the selection committee looks so heavily at the net rankings. Um, but just just add some more icing to the cake here. Uh, you'll you'll get that opportunity for another quad one type win. Um, I believe against West Virginia. Correct me if I'm wrong, no, Mike. No, not close. Oh, West Virginia is not there. Is K-State so still in it so on it's the road? A, right, it's, so a home game, right? The team has to be top 35 in the net, and West Virginia is not close to 35 in the net. Is, well, um, so K-State then. Is K-State top, what is it, top 70? Yeah, they just the have to be top 70, and I think they are. Let me look that up. Kansas At one point, State is 60 in the net. Yeah, so that is okay. a quad one win opportunity at K-State. 
Um, so you do have that uh, that opportunity at K-State to pick up another quad one win. And really, um, to me, this West, but to me, the West Virginia game is the most important because, at this point, for the uh, for the the men's team, avoiding bad losses is going to be more important than picking up um, big wins. And West Virginia's net of sixty nine, um, losing to the team ranked like that at uh, at home is just not a good not a good uh, good look. So you're going to want to uh, avoid losing that game. Oh, I think so. Yeah, so that win would be a uh, it would be a quadrant two game still, so not terrible. Right? Quadrant two, yeah, a quadrant two game, so not uh, awful, but still one you gotta you want to win. Um, the women uh, didn't have quite as good a week of as the men. They had a one and one week. Um, they got destroyed by uh, Texas on the road, which is continues their problem of playing against good teams. They've got outside of. Uh, Oklahoma, they've gotten killed by every good team they've played. Texas has blown them out twice. Baylor's blown them out once. LSU blew them out. Um, team just has trouble playing against good teams. Um, I'm not sure what the problem is. I mean, they don't match up very well against Texas, but that doesn't really explain what happened against Baylor or LSU. Um, I mean, it's certainly not a bad loss. Texas is a top 10 team in the in the women's net rankings, so... It's not a bad loss by any means, but you want this team to be competitive. You, the the Baylor game at home coming up is now uh, later in the season is now really big, just because you need them to look good against a good team to feel confident um, going into the NCAA tournament. Um, they also crushed OU at home on Saturday. Um, it was a good good day for the the basketball teams against OU and Hilton. Um, big bounce back. They really controlled the game the whole time. The outcome was never in doubt. They were up like 20 at halftime or something like that. So they were, oh no, 10 at halftime and then 26 at the end of the third quarter or something. So they really, really dominated that game. Um, for their upcoming schedule, um, a little bit of an easier week. Uh, they do play at KU on Wednesday, and KU is actually currently, I believe, in, in fourth place in the uh, in the standings for the women. Yeah, they are in, in. They're actually in third place, just a game behind the Cyclones and Baylor, who are tied for first. Um, so that's actually going to be a tough game and should be a good one. But then on uh, on uh, Saturday they get uh, a Texas Tech team that's really really bad. Um, so big game at KU on Wednesday, 7 p.m. on ESPN Plus, and then they get Texas Tech at 1 p.m. on Saturday. If they can win both of those games. It'll uh, set them up for a showdown um, against Baylor coming up um, a week from um, a week for on the 28th. A big showdown against Baylor um, at 6 p.m. on the 28th, which could probably decide who wins the uh, Big 12 regular season title. So exciting times coming up for the Cyclones. Three big games. If they can get three wins, um, this team is is going to win the Big 12 outright. It would be fun. Speaking of fun. Um, it was All-Star Weekend in the NBA, um, which is really fun um, to watch certain aspects of it. And Ariane is going to fill us in on uh, on what happened uh, there on the, on the NBA court. Yeah, so we had All-Star Weekend this weekend. Um, it was the 75th anniversary of the NBA as well. Uh, it took place in Cleveland, which also hosted the 50th and 35th anniversary, I believe. So, I'll be honest, I did not watch on Friday for the Rising Stars Challenge or the Celebrity Game, because I didn't care that much. But I did watch on Saturday. Uh, we started with the Skills Challenge. It was a 
they mixed it up a little bit differently this year. They had three teams of three. So you had team Cavaliers, which were three Cavaliers players, team rookies, obviously three rookies, and then three Anadokumbo brothers. Um, there was a passing category, a shooting category, a basically obstacle course category, and then in a move that I didn't like that much because it just felt a little bit too up to chance, the final was half-court shots. Uh, if you're interested, definitely look it up. You can see the video of it. I won't go into it too much, but Team Cavaliers did beat Team Rookies in the finals. Team Anadokounmpo did not make it. Kind of got undone by their shooting. Not a big surprise there. But it was nice for the Cavaliers to win on at home, basically. Uh, the three-point competition, Carl Anthony Towns won that with a finals record 29 points. He is the first big man to win the three-point competition since Kevin Love in 2012. Uh, at that point, he was also playing for the Timberwolves. Uh, I was curious after that, so I did a little looking. Uh, Dirk Nowitzki and Larry Bird are the only other big men to win the three-point competition, and that's just if you want to consider Larry Bird a four and not a three. I kind of think of him as a small forward, but obviously kind of combo small forward, power forward. Uh, the dunk competition, if you have been on any social media since it happened, people have just been roasting it. Um, it took a million years. Everybody took a bunch of attempts that weren't attempts because they didn't actually dunk the ball. It took five to six minutes for a bunch of dunks, it feels like. We really set the tone when Cole Anthony took like five minutes to lace up a pair of Timberlands to put on to do a dunk, and then it was just a generic windmill dunk at the end of it after he failed to try it a bunch of times. Uh, honestly, the only thing worth watching, if you want to watch Obi Toppin's highlights, he did win it. He was probably the only person worth watching the highlights of because he's the only one who didn't fail his dunks nine times in a row. Uh, Jalen Green, Cole Anthony, Juan Toscano-Anderson were the other three taking part, and it was definitely a little bit lackluster. Uh, on Sunday, we had the actual All-Star game. It was Team LeBron who won versus Team Durant, who was not playing that night. Uh, unfortunately, he had a grandmother pass away that day, I believe, so he was not available for the game at all. Uh, LeBron won the game with a one-legged fader on Zach Levine and Joel Embiid coming to help to hit the target score. Uh, Stephen Curry fell two points shorts of the All-Star game record with 50 points on the game. He shot 17 of 30 from the field and 16 of 27 from three-point, and he got the uh, newly named Kobe and Gigi uh, Bryant Award for the MVP award for the All-Star game. It was really fun to watch. I would definitely recommend watching those Steph Curry highlights. He's pulling up from half court, guys in his face, anything he wanted to do, and he was hot. Uh, very little defense, as is normal, in the All-Star game. There was a little bit at the end with the kind of target score. They did change the rules a little bit, so it's the collective score of the three quarters at the end, and then they add 24 in honor of Kobe, and that is the score to beat. So it is an untimed quarter where both teams are playing to a target score. Obviously, the team that uh, each of the quarters start over. So you each win a quarter, and... The, the losing team has a little bit more ground to gain than the uh, leading team, if you will, but it kind of makes it so that you don't have people dribbling out the ball. There's not a foul fest. You don't have to worry about time. It is just untimed. Play to your points. It always ends in a shot, which is kind of fun. And then it was also commercial free, which if we could do that for all basketball games and like the playoffs, I think everybody would be very excited about that. Uh, the other news on All-Star Weekend not really related, but it just got broken. Chris Paul was diagnosed with a thumb fracture and will be reevaluated in six to eight weeks. So that's a big blow for the Suns uh, since their backup point guard, I believe, is Alfred Payton, who is not very good. Um, 
He also, if you saw the highlights of that game, after he jammed his thumb, he was arguing with the referee, and then the referee walked sideways and bumped into Chris Paul when he was not paying attention, then proceeded to throw Chris Paul out of the game for making contact with the, an official while he ran into him. So, all in all, terrible game for Chris Paul that night since he got ejected and is now out for two months for that. But that's pretty much everything that went on that weekend. Um... I'll let Mike take it. We're going to talk about the exciting goings-on or lack thereof in the MLB. Yeah, it's more of a more of a lack thereof uh, in the MLB for sure. The lockout is still ongoing. Um, uh, the owners officially uh, recognized the issue. They canceled spring training games officially through March 5th. Um, and, you know, the owners put out some nice statement that... Uh, they had to do this, and then the players shot back and just like, or you could propose a deal and we could start playing baseball. Was, you know, just continuing their, their media poking and prodding, right, trying to win the PR battle. Um, we're getting into crunch time here. Um, most uh, people are saying that for the season to start on time, uh, which is March 31st, opening day this year, a deal probably needs to be reached um, by this upcoming Sunday, the 27th, um, if we're going to start on time. Now, there is some encouragement, and that's that the sides are going to meet every day um, this week, um, including on Monday, where they met for like six to eight hours, which is impressive, seeing as their last talk lasted uh, a lot closer to six minutes than six hours. Um, so it was good. They didn't make a ton of progress. They're still apart on a lot of these core economic issues, but it's good that they actually sat down, had an extended conversation, talked about it, and they're planning to do the same thing on Tuesday and Wednesday as well um, as they get closer to making a deal. Um, the fact that they had a good long meeting today, even if it wasn't super productive, has um, encouraged me. It's increased my optimism a little bit. That They're now feeling a little bit of a sense of urgency um, the owners, because now the owners are losing money, right? Spring training games make the owners money, um, and they're not getting that money, whereas the players don't get paid until the start of the regular season. Um, so I feel like both, uh, both are getting a little bit of a sense of urgency here to get this done, and I'm starting to get a little optimistic. We'll see this week. It's a huge week for these negotiations. Um, if they can make, if they get a deal done, obviously the season can start on time. If they make a lot of progress, um, maybe the season gets delayed a week or two, but they can still play 162 games. Um, but you need to see major progress come out of these meetings this week um, in order to uh, get to 162 games. So when um, we talked last, you said uh, a deal needed to get done by Valentine's Day for the season to get started on on that, time and getting for, the full that, product. That was, for, that was for spring training to okay. start on time. I got you. I was just yeah. curious. So, yeah, we've already missed that with spring training games started, uh, canceled through March 5th. But, yeah, so it's end of February, right? So that gives you essentially, right, that would give you, right, a week for players to report to camp, and then you could still get a three-week spring training, three-and-a-half-week spring training in, really. Um and then be ready to start the season on time. You'd see a lot of, you'd see a real free agent frenzy there pretty much right away um, because players would want to sign so they could get to camp right away. Um, so if this, if they get a CBA done, you're going to see so many free agent signings in the next 48 hours after that. 
Um, but yeah, you could if they get a deal done in the next week, they could still start the season on time, March thirty first, with a three and a half week abbreviated spring training um, to you, get going. So, do you see a situation where it does start a little late, but they basically uh, you would see those two a days like we did last time with these shortened games, but double headers, so you can still get in the one hundred sixty four games and people can get played. Do you think that would be something that the players and the owners would? do if they couldn't get a deal done fast enough to get the full time in. Yeah, so there's there's certainly uh, a precedent for that. Um, so if we're talking about we're only going to miss like a week or two, we're only going to be a week or two late, um, what, what they do, what they've done in the past is that they just start the schedule. Um, they wouldn't rewrite the schedule, they'd just start it, you know, on whatever day they start, you know, whoever you were scheduled to play April 8th is you know who you're gonna play on your new opening day and then they'd you know scatter those week those week worth of games um that you missed throughout the the season in double headers or on days off um there's certainly precedent for that and um it would be easiest to do it that way just because writing an mlb schedule is very very difficult when you have to take into account ballpark availability and balance schedules and all of these things. So, um, yeah, if they have to rewrite a schedule, things just get really, really messy. Um, so there's definitely precedent for doing it that way. I'm not sure they do the shortened seven-inning doubleheaders if they do that. Um, they'd have to work that out. It's a possibility, but I'd hope they'd play full nine-inning doubleheaders, even if, especially if it's only like six or seven games you need to make up. So. Like, for example, in Kansas City, it's going to get real hard scheduling-wise. You get too late in the fall. You're scheduling both a Royals, a potential Royals home game over the weekend with a Chiefs home game at the same time when they share the same parking lot. Right, uh, like, would right, be just, very difficult right. to pull off. You can't off. do that. Um, you're going to have issues like in Oak. Well, I guess not in Oakland anymore. I was going to say you have a football team and baseball team that play in the same park, but you don't anymore. The Raiders left. You've, a lot of these outdoor stadiums host concerts. I know Target Field has a concert lineup, right? So you'd have to respect um, the concert lineup and the time to convert the stadium and stuff. So ideally, the schedule wouldn't have to be rewritten, but we'll see. I mean, ideally, this would have been solved two months ago and we wouldn't still be talking about it. So. Um, something else that was the discussion of our 8311 cast hosts um, when we were at... Uh, Hilton Coliseum on Saturday, well, most of us were, sorry, Kyle, um, for the uh, OU game, was that um, the OU coach, I forgot his name, what's his name, Ariane? Porter Mosier. Yes, Porter Mosier um, was being very, we'll say adventurous with uh, where he was going on the court. Um, also, he was wearing a white shirt, which is the same color Iowa State was wearing, and some very tight khakis. Um he would look like he was ready to play some defense. He was a little upset at his team. Did he look like Arian auditioning for drum major? You mean Wyatt auditioning for drum or major? Wyatt, dang it, Wyatt auditioning for drum major? Yeah, with the tight khakis. Oops. I brought that up. They did remind me of Wyatt's drum major audition khakis. Um, they did a little bit. Um, but so what I just want to talk about um, in Mike's Stupid Rules this week is the coach's box. Where can and can't a, a coach go um, on the court during play, and what is the penalty um, if they don't do that? So first, the coach's box. 
So you'll see two um, lines on the sideline by the bench. Bench, excuse me. So the first one um, is 28 feet from the baseline, um, and it stretches two feet out, or sorry, um, three feet out into the court, it looks like. Um, um, so that area is the team bench area. That's the area um, um, where the players can be. Um, or so that's the area where the players can be, the 28 foot, and then out onto the court three feet there inside the 28 foot line, the team bench area, is where the coach can be. The coach's box also extends an extra 10 feet out towards center court, but in that area, the coach must stay on the bench or, you know, out of bounds in order to be um, in the legal area. So he's allowed a few feet onto the court if he's within 28 feet of the baseline, but he can go another 10 feet towards center court um, as long as he stays on the sideline and off the court, according to um, the official NCAA rules. Um, so the other thing, so for the penalty, um, officially is that... Um, the first um, first a coach will be warned of a uh, a coaching box violation so it's not um, it's not like an immediate um, technical foul for um, getting out of the coach's box um, they can permit certain behavior like reacting to no calls etc and a little bit of leaving the coach's box um, in those cases um, as long as it is not prolonged, profane, vulgar, or threatening, right? So coaches do get a little bit of leeway as long as they don't do those things. Any of those should, by rule, result in an immediate technical foul. Otherwise, coaches will get a little bit of leeway, and then they'll get a warning, and then they could eventually uh, receive a technical foul for being out of the coach's box. Um, it's not strictly enforced. Um, anybody who's watched a college basketball game knows that the coach's box is not strictly enforced. Um, it was evident in the Iowa State game as well. But um, those are the official rules. Um, you know, that you can insert generic statement about how rules that aren't enforced aren't really rules. But um, th those are, that is the rule book as it is written. Um, it's up to the officials to decide how they want to handle that on the court. Um, does that clear up uh, the confusion, Wyatt and Arian, that we were having during the game? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I agree. So the the big takeaway there, like I say, is it's not often enforced. So you'd have to do something egregious to get a coach's box technical foul. Most often, it's because you're doing one of those other four things that's going to get you teed up anyway. So um, moving on to our accountability session, it's a really short one. Arian was the only one with predictions coming off the board, um, and he had an NBA All Star Game prediction. He predicted that the Cavs coach, J.B. Bickerstaff, would represent the East in the All-Star game. It was actually uh, Eric Spolstra of the Heat, right? No. Yeah. Correct. Was yeah. it? Yeah, I looked it up and then forgot. Yeah, it was you Eric Spolstra of the Heat. Um, so for that, Ariane gets a... Nah. 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 That is it for our accountability session. Um, so I'll start putting some stuff back on the board. I'm going to predict that the Cyclone men will avoid the play-in game in the Big 12 tournament. Now remember, because uh, Oklahoma State is ineligible um, for the Big, Ten Big 12 tournament, um, there will only be nine teams, so they'll do a, a one-play-in a, a one play -in game right between the eight and nine seed to get down to eight teams and then do a bracket there. 
So basically I'm saying two teams that aren't Oklahoma State will finish behind Iowa State in the Big 12 standings. So Oklahoma and West Virginia are currently one and two games back from us. Right, and, TCU and we play West Virginia. Is we do play West Virginia on Wednesday? Yes. Okay. Um, what are the tiebreakers? I guess I don't know. Uh, Big Twelve tournament tiebreak. So OU actually has three out of the same four opponents as we do for the end of their season. They also play Oklahoma State, West Virginia, Kansas State, but they play Texas Tech instead of Baylor, and really that's dealer's choice, which is worse. Yeah. Um, so the tiebreaker, first tiebreaker is head-to-head, um, which against most of the teams would be a push because we split with pretty much everybody this year. Um, and then it would go record against the first-place team and then the second-place team on down the standings until the tie is broken. Um, so we would probably hold the tie. Well, no, Oklahoma beat Texas Tech once as well. Um, so they split there. Anyway. It would be a, we may or may not have the tiebreaker against OU um, when push comes to shove. Hmm. Any thoughts? I'm just looking at schedule here. I, I would tend to agree with you. I, I would imagine we hopefully hold our eighth place spot. I'd like to hope we could, you know. Technically, we are favored against West Virginia, so the odds are on us on that side. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I didn't look up the BPI for everybody's final four-ish remaining games, but I would say single or double. Wyatt, what do you do? You have any thoughts? I mean, no, I have nothing useful to contribute here. I'll say a double though. Okay, I'll say a double as well. You know, not that it would matter, but double it is. Okay, I'll take a double. I was really only expecting a single, but I'll take the double. I would, I would have leaned towards single, but I was outvoted. Do you have anything from Josh this week? Is he still alive? Yep, he's still alive. Uh, he enjoyed spending some time with his dog this weekend, um, but he does not have a prediction for us this week. He is going to take the strikeout week. Boo. I know, kind of lame. My prediction is similar to yours, Mike, actually. I'm going to say that the men's basketball team will win the next five games straight, so the last four of the regular season, and uh, one or more games in the Big 12 championship game, regardless it- if they, they have to play that playing game or not. Home run. Is if this... they win, if they win their next yeah. four, then they've this not. This is a played. home run. Yeah. Uh, obviously, yeah, it's a home run. It better yeah. be. Yeah. Anything involving run. us beating Baylor at home is a home run. So, yeah, it's what I like to see. What do you got, Kyle? Uh, so Emily Ryan is is close. Uh, I'm gonna say that she will tie or break the single season assist record against KU this week. Um, and for uh, the the cast here, um, she is 10 away from tying and 11 away from breaking. So she needs 10 or 11 assists in, the, in one a game. a lot of assists. I, I believe she averages 6.5 a game. Is that it's, right? It's seven right now. Seven. According to Yahoo Sports, uh, this year she is averaging exactly seven assists per game. I would say double or triple here. What do you guys now, for history this year, she has, well, I guess this is in the last one, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. So sample size of just 11 games. Uh, she's only broken double digits once. And in that one uh, game, she had 17. So she's got nine twice. 
and eight. So she's been close, but her average uh, in Big 12 play over the last 11 games is roughly around five in all the other games. Yeah. Triple? I'm just looking at that, her. That feels uh, right. Her league play stats here. Yeah, she's broken 10 assists two times with 16 and 17. Other than that, she's hit nine twice, eight twice, a little bit less than that. So, yeah, that seems reasonable. Yeah. All right. Triple it is. Did you get her in? I am going to say that the Iowa State basketball program as a whole will finish their remaining games three and one. That is both the women's team and the men's team will both record a three and one record in their final four games. Exactly three and one. This feels like a triple or home run to me because it's exact and it's two teams. Yeah, what is the, that, that is the what's most the women's likely. schedule again? Uh, the they women have at finish. Kansas, then versus Texas Tech, then versus Baylor, then I forgot who their last game's against. At West Virginia, and Baylor is currently the only one ranked uh, number five. It is the most three and one is probably the most likely record for both of those teams. I'd probably guess two and two for the men. Yeah, at K-State, it's going to be tough. I'm between a triple or a home run. What do you guys think? I think we've screwed Ariane a couple times. So, so do it again. So it's a home run. Is it do it again? Hey, I'll take a makeup call. I'm down with the home, home run. run. We'll give yeah. you a home run for it. It's all right. It'll probably come off the board. Whoever plays next will probably just lose, and then we'll be <laughs> done with it anyway. I mean, they could both lose, right? If they lose they, their they first could. game, it's not done, right? They could each oh, lose you're their right. first game. And then... But the men's team's that. chances go significantly yeah, yes, drastically. down. <laughs> yes. If they, if they beat Baylor at home, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to say anything because it's recorded. I don't want to say I'll do anything crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all on the record here. With a double, triple, and two home runs, that includes our Write That Down prediction segment, which means we are at the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening to episode 164 of the 8311 Cast. Before you go check out our next episode, 165, make sure you swing by our Twitter page at 8311Cast or on Instagram at 8311Cast. Signing off for the 8311Cast, we have your hosts, Kyle Mersh, Mike Ludwig, Ariane Barry, and Wyatt Teeter. We'll talk to you all again next week. Go Cyclones! Go Cyclones! Go Cyclones! Go Cyclones! Go Cyclones.